This is a podcast from the Refugee Study Centre. To learn more about our work, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk. Talk about the nearly 3 million refugees from Syria who are 
in registered in the neighboring countries of Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, Israel, Egypt. So that basically we're talking about 96% of those who have fled the Syrian uprising or the civil war or whatever term you want to give it have been hosted by the neighboring countries. 96%. Some of the numbers are huge. Lebanon is more than 1 million, uh, actually representing nearly 20% of the entire population of Lebanon. That's Turkey, 800,000, uh, Jordan, uh, hosting somewhere in the region, 600,000. These are really huge numbers. However, one thing I think we should keep in mind is that there are 6 million internally displaced uh, people in Syria. Many of them are actually able to leave the country, but don't for a number of reasons. Some of them are, are political. Others move back and forth across the Syrian border, uh, establishing again a pattern of circular migration which we first recognized with the Iraqi crisis between 2000 and 2010. With the exception of Germany, uh, there really are very few initiatives in Europe. The primary aim of uh, Europe seems to be to contain the crisis in the eastern Mediterranean region and to reinforce Europe's borders. So I just show you the next slide. This is not quite as easy to read. You can't make out the numbers, but if you consider the size of the circles, and I just consider it myself, the really small circle is represents a thousand. The larger circle represents ten thousand asylum requests. So, uh, and the largest is. Uh, 30,000, so Sweden, Germany, uh, up to 30,000 asylum requests, but the UK, it looks more like 10,000, 10,000 perhaps in a few other countries. The numbers really aren't very large. Um, and uh, the final point I just want to make, uh, of course, the other 4% of those fleeing from Syria who are reaching Europe, uh, primarily going to, to Germany and Sweden. Um, very few coming to the UK relative to, to the numbers and the size. Uh, certainly, the UNHCR has called on states to provide resettlement and other forms of admission for nearly 100,000 Syrians in 2015, 2016. The question to be asked is really why have so few number one tried to leave the Eastern Mediterranean? Roger's presentation may give us some clues. But for those who do try, why has the journey been so perilous, so expensive, and so isolating when you consider they're just on the other side of the Mediterranean coast? So uh, these are my opening remarks. I'm going to just now introduce uh, one of the co-editors of the Post-Migration Review, uh, Morris, if you want to just um, Yes, please do, and I will you stand. I'm going to stand. Yes. Uh, thank you very much. Um, my name is Morris Hurston. I am, as said, one of the uh, editors of Post Migration Review with my colleague, Marion Caldrick, who's sitting in the audience. Uh, and we're very pleased to be able to bring you Post Migration Review number 47, Syria Crisis, Displacement Protection. Those of you who are here, please help yourself to copies if you haven't already done so, and anybody who's watching it now online or later, uh, please look on our website. Um, the first thing I'd like to do is to thank the Regional Development and Protection Programme led by Denmark, but also the contributions from the European Union, Ireland, Netherlands, UK and the Czech Republic for funding this issue. Now there is a point in saying that, because without the funding we might actually have found it quite hard to produce an issue on Syria, 
uh, although the scale of the displacement, both inside and beyond the borders of Syria, is so dramatic. Staggering is the word used by Erin Mooney, writing about internal displacement in, uh, inside Syria itself in this issue. I'm going to give a quick run through, a quick flip through of some of the issues that are raised in the issue. Apart from Erin's article, which I just mentioned, there's only one other article that directly addresses, uh, talks about Syria. And that is by Zareen Haddad, who writes about uh, how the crisis is altering women's roles in Syria. Um, three colleagues from Georgetown University have written, on the other hand, about the role of men, or rather, how men per se are perceived, perceived, which is as a threat, even those men whose choice has been to absent themselves from the fighting. And this resonates with the article by Blanche Tax of UNHCR who writes of the targeting of people by virtue of their belonging to a particular group or category. And she argues that there's a case therefore for regarding people from such target groups as refugees by association. Even within the confines of uh, FMR's particular interest in forced migration, we could have decided to shape this issue in any number of ways. And in fact, FMR is always a bit of what I call a mosaic, shaped but not focused. And this issue is no different, so it's spread is my choice quite wide. However, in this case, we did chose to bias our call for articles and the articles that have subsequently been published, particularly towards observations that could be of value in increasing the level of protection for the displaced people and in shaping assistance both to displaced people and to the countries and communities that are hosting them. And with an eye specifically on issues of costs and impacts. These are ideas that can be found in many of the articles, and in some of them very directly, as in the major article by Roger Zetter and Eloise Rodell, which Roger will talk about in greater length in a moment, as Jordan said. Oliver Dahi addresses the need for development spending in Lebanon and Jordan, and the contribution of Syrians to the economic growth in the Kurdish region of Iraq is the subject of our Nova Sultan and Louisa Seferis and the Refugee Council. The way that refugees are tre treated, how they act on their behalf in Lebanon, is the subject of several articles, their legal status, the communities where they're hosted, and the activism of refugees themselves in relief efforts. The particular difficulties and vulnerabilities of Palestinians displaced from or trapped in Syria is also often mentioned, and their vulnerability specifically <coughs> treated in an article by Leah Morrison. Other articles deal with Syrians who have self-settled in Lebanon, and those who are mobile between Syria and Lebanon. Mobility is also identified as a protection issue in an article by Melissa Phillips and Catherine Starrett of the Danish Refugee Council. Their article takes us also to Libya and Turkey. Dr. Saleh Al-Khilani is a refugee affairs coordinator in the Jordanian Ministry of Interior, where he writes of the duty and the burden of the refugees in his country. While Crystal Plotner poses the question of whether Israel, the only country neighboring Syria that has not opened its borders to refugees, could or should open up the occupied Golan Heights to displace Syrians. And finally, there are a couple of articles, one by Marcus Skinner of Hellbage on the impact of displacement on disabled, injured, and older Syrian refugees, and another by colleagues from the Centre for the Victims of Torture on the mental health of refugee children and adolescents. As I said, a bit of a mosaic about what's happening in the region. Roger Zetter, whose article I've already mentioned, led the preparation of a mapping and meta-analysis of existing costs and impacts study for the Danish government in the context of the regional response program that I mentioned at the start of the provider of our funding. And the article he co-authored in this issue is based on that work. And I'll pass on to him to talk more about it. Thank you.
Thank you very much, Loris, uh, and thank you to all for the introduction. I think um, I have a very short time for presentation of an enormous subject, and Dr. Morris has, I think, captured quite a lot of what I was going to say, so I can be even briefer. The uh, High Commissioner for Refugees last week, um, as the number of refugees exceeded 3 million, took the opportunity to remind us that the Syrian crisis, unbelievable though it might be, was quickly becoming a forgotten crisis as the turmoil in the rest of the region was engulfing not just Syria, uh, Iraq, Palestine, but the whole region. So I think the launch today is a very timely addition to the High Commissioner's um, point last week, and indeed the point raised by Nigel Fisher, who was the humanitarian regional coordinator uh, for the Syrian response plan, who also, I think, drew attention to the need to relocate our concern, um, particularly as the crisis becomes more of a protracted crisis, and as we shift from the emergency and humanitarian framing of what has been happening uh, as a result of the Syrian exodus, both the refugees and the uh, much larger number of IDPs, as we shift the, the focus, I think, to looking at the long-term impacts and what long-term responses might be. And I think the, the, the objective, particularly of FFR and the, the range of papers in there, as Morris has suggested, is really trying to transcend the immediacy of the crisis and to look at the evolving protection needs uh, in the host countries, but also to look at the developmental impacts and developmental opportunities. Again, surprising and perhaps paradoxical as it may seem, large-scale force displacement does offer potential development opportunities, depending on how we frame it and how we respond to those uh, concerns as an international community, as donors, and indeed as the host government. As Morris has highlighted, the context, I think, for the FMR special issue, and particularly for the paper that Eloise and I wrote, was really a, uh, a meta-analysis of some 200 studies, um, study, our own studies completed about six months ago, it was a meta-analysis of getting off of 200 studies that have already been completed, situation reports, evaluation reports, uh, strategic documents, and so on. Um, and our study was really to provide a kind of baseline for the inception of the RDPP, which finally got underway after perhaps two years of preparation uh, this June. But also, I think, in the context of the, uh, this year's uh, Syria Regional Response Plan, the 2014 Regional Response Plan, uh, which in itself, if you read it very carefully, shifts the emphasis, I think, or begins to shift the emphasis towards long-term developmental needs, programming, and longer-term protection issues that are arising in, in the region. So that's very much the, the background to the paper that I've done. I guess to talk a little bit about the paper that Eloise and I wrote, but really, I think, just to pick up some of the themes that, that really, I think, cut across many of the papers uh, in, in special issue. And I want to look at this in the two contexts of development and protection. I think in terms of development, what the uh, special issue tries to do, and I think the context our paper sets, is very much looking at development in a very wide context with a wide perspective. Obviously, the immediate focus is on the livelihoods of the displaced. Their chronic vulnerabilities, their very risky coping strategies, um, the challenge of engaging with a very large informal economy in the region, and essentially a kind of unsustainable um, response at the current time 
given the constraints the refugees face in gaining, uh, in, in being able to work or not being able to work, um, and so on and so forth. But I think it's also important to look at uh, the developmental impacts, both the costs and impacts, as well as the opportunities, uh, in terms of the host community as well. And particularly the focus of our paper is looking at some of the macroeconomic impacts, which are very often forgotten, I think, in many refugee crises. And here we have a very mixed picture. The irony of a boom economy in the Kurdish region of Iraq and the pockets of the economy in Jordan and Lebanon um, but at the same time, and sort of the antithesis of that is a real loss of foreign direct investment, the negative growth of the Lebanese economy, declining by something in the order of 3% uh, per annum now as a result of the impact. But again, as I said, the boom in certain aspects of the private sector. Jordan, a very similar picture. So you get these very sharply differentiated inequalities within the region and within the countries, and you might argue that what you've got is kind of private gain. And certainly there are significant private gains for um, the private sector for commercial interests as well, on the one hand, and what you might call sort of public pain on the other. The impacts are really being felt, I think, on public services, in, in housing markets particularly, and so on. So I think the, what the FMR 47 does is to provide this kind of perspective on some of these developmental challenges, some of the impacts. In a minute, I'm going to um, shift forward and look at perhaps some of the responses that are highlighted in FMR. Picking up, I think, some of the key protection issues and protection challenges, obviously, it almost goes without saying about the, the solidarity of the region, even though the, the three main countries, Lebanon, Egypt and Jordan are not signatories to the 51 Convention or the 67 Protocol. Turkey is a signatory to the 51 Convention. Although they are not sort of fully integrated, you might say, into the global refugee legal and normative framework, nevertheless, the kind of solidarity and response and the level of protection, whilst one could not say it is, it is superb, it is certainly, I would say, broadly satisfactory. But again, I think there are very, very significant pressure points, inevitably, given the scale. Um, of the demand for protection, huge pressure on capacity, huge pressure on the quality of protection those countries can, uh, can provide. And particularly, I think, in terms of the refugee experience, inconsistency between countries in terms of visa requirements, in terms of working regulations, and so on and so forth. Particularly important, one of the papers, as indeed our own study does, is to highlight the, I think, the the, the, the really challenging situation of Palestinian refugees constantly displaced, effectively trapped by the Syrian crisis, as indeed they were trapped by the Iraqi crisis 10 years ago. And I think a particular pressure and problem there of finding modalities for much more effective protection of, of the Palestinian population. And I think in general what one finds in terms of the protection context is this kind of socio-economic vulnerability combined with the pressure on the protection system, I think, makes the refugee population very, very susceptible, I think, to a further downturn in their livelihoods, a further downturn in their socio-economic position, and perhaps um, opening them to increasing sort of human rights pressure and human rights abuses. In terms of ways forward, uh, it seems to me that development and protection come together. I think if one's looking particularly at the protracted refugee situation, 
what our paper does, and I think other papers also argue, is that we need to stabilize the very precarious economic situation in these countries. We need to develop, as indeed is already beginning to occur, a, a strategy, a developmental strategy, not a humanitarian response strategy, but a development strategy which embraces both refugees and host populations in that way hoping to mitigate some of the tensions, inevitable tensions that are arising between the host and the refugees. I think to try and facilitate the opportunities for private sector economic development, and there are many opportunities for host entrepreneurs as well as refugees themselves as a way forward to establish not only a reversal of the economic impacts of the crisis, but also to improve the protective environment in which the refugees themselves are located. I think we need to look at development-led strategies, we need to look at much stronger market-based programming, uh, we need to help with economic development, particularly in terms of the labour market pressures, pressures on housing, and also um, the absolute priority need to tackle fiscal stress and public sector pressure, because I think it's very much in terms of the impact on public services, the impact on water supply systems, not just now, but in 10, 15 years' time. This kind of public sector loss, as I said, or public sector pain or private sector gain, we have to look at um, longer-term economic strategies to balance out the kind of economic disequilibria that are uh, appearing and are becoming, I think, quite um, a severe um, destabilization um, factor in all these countries. In terms of protection, the ways forward, it seems to me, and again, this is picked up, I think, by a number of the papers in FMR, the need to establish a much more consistent uh, standard of protection across the countries, the importance of enhancing the rights of refugees, trying to find ways of opening up their entitlements, or what should be their entitlements in the host countries, trying to establish a much stronger rights-based regime in these countries, Strengthening the benchmarks, I think, of protection is important so that we can measure the ways in which legal status is being stabilized and is being improved. And finally, I think to pick up again a couple of, a couple of papers have done, and as Boris himself has emphasized, the importance of addressing protection of vulnerability issues with regard to women and children. I think particular socioeconomic stress and particular protection issues are being highlighted there. So that really is a very, very short synopsis of some of the thinking that lay behind the, the study that was commissioned by the Danish government for the RDPP, that lay behind the paper that uh, Eloise and I have written, that I think really is the, the, the thematic drivers, if you like, of FMR. And I hope you uh, enjoy reading it and find the context and the content and the substance of the papers both informative, but also, I think, and, and critically, that that information is then put into uh, <coughs> policy development in the region. Thank you. For more information about the different ways you can stay updated and engaged with the work of the Refugee Study Centre, please visit www.rsc.ox.ac.uk forward slash connect.